All right. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And then skipping down to verse 20 through the end of the chapter, it says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen. have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Um, When we started the series that we're going through on our confession of faith, um, the very first lesson that I did was on why we're confessional. Before we ever got into the confession itself, I wanted to say, why even have a confession? That was about two and a half years ago. Several of you weren't even here then, and... I think it might be helpful to revisit some of that. Um, What has prompted me to do this is um, Ligonier Ministries has a survey that they take. I think it's every other year, I think, that they take it. Um, But it's it's called the State of Theology. And uh, it's tracking, number one, what U.S. adults believe about certain topics and then it gets more specific what so-called evangelicals think about certain topics. So um, I want to begin with some reasons why we're confessional and then I want to get into some of those statistics from that survey to try to show you what happens when you just completely spurn the wisdom that has been handed down to us from the church in past ages, okay? Um, Of course, ultimately, as our confession says, we always want to go back to Scripture. But the tradition of the church does not, therefore, become irrelevant. Um, We would be fools to not learn from the saints who came before us. Um, The Spirit has moved in Christ's church from the beginning. And so uh, we have the benefit of all of the things that they had to work through and work out. Um, we have the benefit of that being handed down. I'm afraid not so much here because we are a confessional church and we're going through the confession and so on and so forth, but more broadly and more generally, that's been spurned. 
Um, so I just kind of want to go over these things because it's, it's on my mind, um, and I, I, I think it's very important. So first question, why confessionalism? A.A. Um, a. Hodge, in his commentary on the Westminster Confession, identifies four reasons for confessionalism. And he says, number one, to mark, disseminate, and preserve the attainments made in the knowledge of Christian truth by any branch of the church in any crisis of its development. So this can be seen clearly in the wording of the confession, our confession, as it purposely accords with the doctrinal formulations that came from several of the ecumenical councils, such as the doctrines of the Trinity, we recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, right? That connects us. It's not Scripture, okay? It's not infallible Scripture, but it's based on that, and it's something that goes way back to the early church, okay? That connects us. Um, though, that entire thing, like, you're working through some very hard theological topics, and we don't understand how hard because it's already been worked out. We inherited their work. Um, so things like the doctrine of the Trinity or the person and the natures of Christ, um, which is you know what we're about to get into when we get back into chapter 8 of the confession. So <clears throat> the, uh, the wording of our confession heavily borrows from the past church. Okay? Uh, a second reason is to discriminate the truth from the glosses of false teachers and to present it in its integrity and due proportions. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, said something along the lines of discernment is not uh, figuring out what the difference between right and wrong is. It's figuring out the difference between right and almost right. Um, confessions help preserve where the church has been able to discern right from almost right. Um, because almost right, if you keep going, becomes very, very wrong over time. Uh, and I would just say look at several of the abuses. Um, I was actually going to point to Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodox and things like that. But quite frankly, this survey shows maybe it's even worse than evangelicalism now. Um, because at bare minimum... At least there is some grounding and tradition in those traditions, and they do hold to, for example, the church's historical formulation of the Trinity and persons and uh, things like that. So, excuse me, not persons, natures. One person, two natures. Um, I just misspoke there. Um, Sam Waldron says, quote, when men use the very words of the Bible to promote heresy, when the word of truth is perverted to serve error, nothing less than a confession of faith will serve publicly to draw the lines between truth and error, end quote. So this is what my mind tends to go to. Um, Arius, the one who said that Jesus was God's first and highest creation through whom the rest of creation was created, would quote scripture to back up his position. Um, it wasn't until the church got together at the Council of Nicaea that this was definitively said to be heresy. Um, what did they have to do? 
to be able to say that, they formulated a confession. It was much smaller than the confession we're going through, but they formulated a confession specifically confessing that Jesus is God. Um, and that didn't end the controversy. It continued on for several more decades, but nevertheless, Nicene Orthodoxy still marks the church to this day. Um, a third... Actually, before I do that, I would also point out Arius... Uh, Arius's heresy also lives on. Jehovah's Witnesses, perfect example of Arians. They believe that Jesus is less than God. Um, they would say that he is, at best, a God, little g. So, <clears throat> this still is relevant uh, almost 2,000 years later. Um, Okay, a third reason to have confessions of faith is to act as the basis of ecclesiastical fellowship among those nearly agreed as to be able to labor together in harmony. Um, this was actually one of the primary reasons the 1689 divines wrote our confession. It wasn't primarily to point out our differences with others, but rather our similarities with others. They were trying to show their similarities particularly with the other Puritans, the Presbyterians and the Separatists or Independents or Congregationalists. All three of those are the same people. Um, but that was the point, was to say, no, actually, we're like really, really close. Like We can work together. We're really, really close. Um, at the same time, it was also to show we're not Anabaptists. We, you keep charging us with that, but we're not. We're like you, except we just don't baptize our babies. That, you know, and there's more differences in the confession, but that's, I think, the biggest one. Um, and the introduction to the confession, which is something we don't often look at, because it's, we would think, oh, it's just the introduction. That's nothing of substance there. Actually, there is. The divine said this, quote, This we did talking about writing the confession, the more abundantly to manifest our consent with both Presbyterians and Congregationalists in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also with many others whose orthodox confessions have been published to the world on the behalf of the Protestant in diverse nations and cities. So, they can serve as a unifying function. Um, a fourth reason for using confessions of faith, is to be used as instruments in the great work of popular instruction, which is what we do every Wednesday. That's what I'm using it for as I teach it, popular instruction. Uh, <clears throat> this is the primary purpose we're going to do till we finish the series. And who knows, maybe we start over again. I don't know. I don't know how we're going to handle a confession of faith is designed to take the great truths of Scripture and systematize them in order to aid the saints in better learning Christian doctrine. I'm thankful for that. Uh, I believe, with one exception, I believe everything in the 1689 Confession. But I promise you, those men worded it way better than I ever could. <laughs> so uh, I am very thankful that we have that to go off of and we can take the simple, concise statements that they have and then expound upon it. Um, 
Another thing to consider along those same lines, uh, the command of the Great Commission is that we make disciples, right? And a necessary part of fulfilling that command is the inculcation of Christian doctrine. So I think confessions make that easier to do. Uh, Sam Waldron, in his commentary on the 1689 Confession, identifies two objections to confessionalism. Number one, confessions of faith undermine the sole authority of the Bible in matters of faith and practice. Well, the problem with that is, well, you know, actually I will say it could if, if we elevate confessions higher than they should be. But it doesn't have to, and with ours certainly it shouldn't because the very first line in our confession says the Scripture is the final authority. Um, so, I mean, in a confession like ours, shouldn't. That should never be a problem. Uh, a second reason for uh, resisting confessions of faith is that they are inconsistent with liberty of conscience before God. So the idea there is that, well, we've got this confession of faith, and on, if it addresses secondary matters, which ours does, uh, then that just denies your liberty of conscience. You're not allowed to have your own opinion. You have to fall lockstep with the confession. But I think we all know just from being here together and having been under this since the inception of this church, that's just not true. Um, yes, we do demand unity in first-tier doctrines. So, like, if you were a denier of the Trinity, that's a problem. Uh, if you're going to deny justification by faith alone, that's a problem. But, you know, matters of, like, say, eschatology or something like that, no. Uh, we have all kinds of different views on eschatology in this church and we get along just fine um so i i I don't think uh i i think that just us sitting here practically know that objection is not true just because we live it out um in our own context our confession helps to show unity and distinctives in multiple ways and these were some of the ones that i thought about at the beginning of uh the series we're going through on the confession. Uh, One, it shows we agree with our Reformed brethren in opposition to dispensationalism in that we adhere to covenant theology. Now, when those who framed the 1689 confession framed it, dispensationalism wasn't even a thing. But now, all this time later, it serves to help us when it is a thing. And in fact, the majority thing in the United States. So that's one thing. Uh, However, it also shows our distinctive Baptist covenant theology as opposed to classical covenant theology with its view of household baptisms. Its inclusion of infants in the covenant, which I'm not going to go back into. We are, seriously, we're done with the chapter. (laughs) But... uh, It also shows our unity in Baptist principles with our general Baptist brethren. uh, We agree with those who may not agree with us on the doctrines of grace, but we do agree on baptism of believers only, baptism by immersion. Um, But, at the same time, it shows our distinctive way of getting to credo-baptism through covenant theology, as well as our Calvinistic soteriology. So we agree with General Baptist on 
the mode and the um, recipients, but we don't get there the same way. We don't have the same reasons for believing that. Our confession brings both of those things out. Um, and then finally, it shows our distinctive view of church government and opposition to uh, Presbyterian and Episcopalian governmental structures. So those are just some things I wanted to bring back to your remembrance. Um, I mean, we had already covered it, but I just wanted to bring it back to your remembrance. And some of you that weren't here, maybe it was the first time you heard it. So then uh, I do want to get into this state of theology now. Um, Before I do that, though, any comments or questions or anything before I get into this? Yeah, on the four reasons, mm-hmm. uh, the first one, I didn't get that fully jotted down. Uh, can you repeat that one? Yes, if I can pull it back up. <laughs> yes, so again, these were A.A. A. Hodges' reasons, so this is not reasons I came up with. Okay. But uh, number one was to mark, disseminate, and preserve the attainments made in the knowledge of Christian truth by any branch of the church in any crisis of its development. Because the idea there is um, the church is forced to be more specific when it's faced with heresy. It could be vague until suddenly it's attacked, basically. Now when we're attacked, we have to be specific. And then that serves future generations um, of Christians because so, now we have this specific definition um, moving forward. So, the uh, state of theology in the United States. Um, I'm going to be reading some of this, but I uh, encourage discussion on this because I would like for us to talk. Um, It says, what do Americans believe about God, salvation, ethics, and the Bible? Ligadier Ministries and Lifeway Research partnered to find out. Every two years we take the theological temperature of the United States to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. Uh, Read some of our key findings from 2022 below and explore the data for yourself. And we are just looking at the key findings. I'm not getting into every single detail of this, but um, a lot of this is concerning. Um, Okay, so the first question they ask, does God change? Right, I see. Yeah, I see people shaking their head. No, see, confessions help. We went over the chapter on God, and we went over that God does not change, and we read the verses, right? Because it always, we always wanted to go back to Scripture. It was a launching pad to the Scriptures. Clearly, read Isaiah. Clearly, God does not change. But this is what the survey says. As we look at ourselves and at the world, it is clear that human beings, along with the rest of creation, undergo frequent changes. Remember we talked about being and becoming, right? But does this principle of change apply to God as well? The Bible affirms the truth that the triune God is both omniscient, meaning all-knowing, and immutable, meaning that he cannot and does not change, I don't know if the adult class has the same attributes, but I know we went over these things in Sunday school in my class. Uh, 
But despite this truth, the majority of adults in the United States believe that God both learns and adapts to different circumstances. So the results of this, uh, so this is just the adult population in the U.S., not specifically Christians, just adult population, okay? 51% agree that God changes. 32% disagree. Okay? Now, while I do not mean to minimize that because I think we should be absolutely concerned for the salvation of that 51%, I don't think it's a shocking result because we're not talking about specifically church, right? These are people who identify as Christian, am I correct? Well, not that statistic. So we're looking okay. at first the adult population in the U.S. These just are broadly. just random people. First. Okay. But then we look at the same question with evangelicals. Alright. That, and I will say, evangelical is very broadly defined. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, so the U.S. adult finding was 51, uh, uh, 51% agree and 32% disagree. Okay. Not surprising, or I don't feel like it's surprising. But despite the clear teaching of Scripture, this year's survey reveals that approximately half of evangelicals believe that God learns and adapts to various situations, meaning that they believe that God does change. The results of that were 48% of U.S. evangelicals believe God changes and 43% disagree. That's scary. <laughs> yes, it is. Here's the thing, and maybe this is just the pessimist in me, that didn't surprise me either. Um, results like that should be shocking. Because uh, evangelical has evangel in it, and evangel is the gospel. If you have a God who changes, you don't have a gospel. Um, how do I know that he's not going to change his mind tomorrow about saving me? <coughs> Actually, he's not even going to be all-powerful if he changes, right? How do I know he can even keep me? Um. <clears throat> These results show that American evangelicals and the general U.S. population are essentially equivalent in their agreement with this statement. Nearly half of both groups believe that God changes by learning and adapting. This may indicate the influence of open theism, which we addressed when we went over the chapter about God, which is essentially God does not know to some degree, it varies in degree, but to some degree God does not know the future. That's what open theism holds, okay? Um, I, I do want to be clear. I am not putting these people down. I used to be an open theist, okay? God graciously saved me from that. But I'm just, I'm saying it is a concerning thing. That may be why it's not shocking to me, actually, now that I think about it. But um, anyway, uh, so it indicates the influence of open theism, which denies God's complete knowledge of future events, and process theology, which denies God's omnipotence, meaning his uh, complete and full sovereignty and power, and asserts that he does undergo changes within the evangelical church. This finding may also indicate a lack of clear biblical teaching on the character of God in evangelical churches. 
It may. <laughs> it certainly does. Um, process theology is the idea that God undergoes change over time. Well, I, I understand that. Then. Uh, yeah, um, of course, that's heresy. Yeah, that, yeah. that we would most definitely never affirm that. But um, that's what uh, that's what seems to be the majority report. Um, well, at least close to a majority report for evangelicals in the U.S. You had more of those saying yes than no. Then you had those in the middle that said, oh, no. <laughs> so, <clears throat> all right. So, there is basically the view of God that he's like me. That, that's basically what open theism amounts to. He's a better version of me. Uh, so, then the next question is... So, Doctrine of God. Let's move to one about the doctrine of man. Are we born innocent? Uh, it says, When God created the world, everything he made was good. Yet, through Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, humankind became corrupted. The Bible teaches the concept of original sin, which means that since the fall, every human being inherits a sin nature from the time of their conception. Remember, we went over this, I think, multiple times, really. We had a chapter on creation, and then we also talked about, within that context, the covenant of works, right? We inherit Adam's sin uh, apart from Christ. Adam is our covenant head. We, we inherit his sin as his children, okay? Um, <clears throat> so, in other words, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. Come from the womb, spewing lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, how does it go? Um, in sin, my mother conceived me, I think is what David said. <laughs> um, so here's the findings on this. Um, U.S. adult finding. Again, not particularly Christian, just U.S. adults. In, in answer to the question, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, 71% agree versus 21% disagree. I'm not really shocked by that. Um, if anything, I'm kind of shocked that it agree was so low uh, for the U.S. adult population because you got to think we're very individualistic kind of people. Um, and so we don't, uh, as a nation, I think original sin is going to be very foreign to our thought process. Um, it is unsurprising, so they agree, that most U.S. adults believe that humans are born innocent given the influence of humanistic philosophies and worldviews that teach self-determinism and a view of humankind as basically good. Actually, I, I've even got a, certain movies in my mind, uh, recent movies that teach that. Humankind is basically good. I mean, you know, we're not perfect, but basically good, you know. Uh, here's the problem. <laughs> So in response to the same question, U.S. evangelical finding was 65% agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God versus 32% that disagree. Okay. So two-thirds of the so-called evangelical church in the United States deny original sin. Okay which does away with the idea of the federal headship of Christ. Because if you don't have a federal headship of Adam, you don't have a federal headship of 
Christ. If you don't have a federal headship of Christ, you don't have a gospel. But then again, you don't need a gospel because humans are basically good, right? You just need a little help. That's right. I'm surprised that's not higher. At least some people I've met in my life. I just figured it'd be a higher number. Where, you know, it's like, oh, we're all born innocent. But then we sin, and then we mess up, and then we... I did not up. look into the... And I don't even know if they had this listed. I didn't look into the details of the uh, study, but here's my best guess, okay? Some of those good old Presbyterians came through. <laughs> um, I, I really think uh, that... I would be a large bulk of that 32% would be Presbyterians. I would be interested to see what it was two years ago. Um, I know you can find that on here, but it might take me a minute because to find I'm it. I'm just wondering if this resurgence of, of Reformed theology may have had uh, an impact on that. Well, I think too. Could have. I, I know you can find it, but it would take me a minute to find it. So I think... I might can find it later for you. What is the resurgence of Reformed theology? Well, I, I'll give you an example. Here we are. Um, right. This is, I mean, and I, I mean, and I say that kind of jokingly, but at the same time, I don't okay. see that as uh, a uh, uh, a norm now. So, have you ever heard of New Calvinism no. versus Old Calvinism? Okay. So there's, there's some younger kids out here who are basically talking about the doctrines that we adhere to, and they're putting some spin on them, but it's, you're almost seeing this bubble. Soteriology specifically yeah, for yeah, New Calvinism, yeah, so yeah. the five points. Yeah. Not necessarily reformed more broadly, right. but just so, yeah. specifically the five points. And so you're seeing more worded <clears throat> truth come out of the pulpits that's not been there in, in, in and yeah it is still a smaller but there's there's a broader spectrum of it hitting the general public than there has been in say the last I don't know, 50, 60 years. Absolutely. So I would say number one, I think in all seriousness, the fact this church exists is an example because I am not aware when I was growing up and I grew up in this area, I'm not aware that there was a Reformed Baptist church anywhere in the vicinity, and if you would have asked me uh, when I was growing up what a Reformed Baptist was, I would have looked at you like, huh? So, no, I I wouldn't, no. I I do think that's an example. But uh, something else I would say, yes, I do think as far as if we're going to take the category American Evangelical, certainly it's a minority. But I'll also say I do think it's a growing minority because I think what you've got is as our culture gets worse and worse, uh, I think you've got some Christians who just go kind of wonky and maybe even just apostatize altogether and leave the faith. And then you have some that actually take the faith seriously and then go, you know what, there's got to be more. And so they start digging in, trying to connect themselves to the historical church. And then I think by that process, a lot of them come to reform theology. So I, I and I mean that's what happened to me, honestly. Right. Um, so I do think that, especially in younger Christians, that is a thing. Um, but it is still a minority thing. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna. I'm back to quoting this. The fact that almost. Two-thirds of evangelicals believe that humans are born in a state of innocence 
reveals that the biblical teaching of original sin is not embraced by most evangelicals. God's Word, however, makes clear that all humans are, by nature, children of wrath. Ephesians 2.3 This truth is foundational. Please get that statement. This truth is foundational for an accurate understanding of the gospel and of our absolute need for the grace of God in salvation. So as opposed to the, I just need a little help because I'm basically good. I just need that little kick in the pants over. I, no, that's not what scripture teaches at all. Quite the opposite. The gospel is being put out in a lot of places. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the, the gospel says, apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead in your sins. There is no good in any of us. That's our gospel, but what's being taught in a lot of churches are, you're pretty good, you just need God to help you. Oh, yeah. And there's the gospel. That's the movies. That's the movies. That's the movies. Yeah. That's just yeah. That's that's right here too. I understand. Yep. Yeah. We want more. No, absolutely. Uh, and I think that. So I grew up in fundamentalist circles, and there was this this club that I never really identified the members of, but I kept hearing it uh, talked about the good old boy club, and um, I think that's what they were referring to is those guys that made a profession of faith and they maybe they got baptized and then they might not really be faithful to Christ, but they're good old boys. It'll be all right. <laughs> all right. That kind of thing. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to preservation and perseverance of the saints. Yes, absolutely. Um, all right. Um, oh yeah. This is going off on a rabbit trail, but that's just fine. That's kind of what I was hoping was going to happen. Um, so the New Calvinism thing, let me circle back around to that. That has not as much to do with this survey, but I do want to point something out on that. Um, while I do find some good qualities of that movement, um, I do think it's wonderful for more people to embrace the doctrines of grace. That's great. Uh, and I'll even say that movement helped me some of the people in that movement anyway helped me get there. Um, ultimately, it was the Holy Spirit guiding me while I read Paul, but uh, they got me at least thinking about it. Okay. Um, I think overall we got to reject that movement because I think there's a lot of sensuality that goes along with that as well. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of those guys are falling out in a way now. Absolutely, they are. Uh, there, there's too much of a focus on Christian liberty. So these are the guys Robert that. Chan. I mean, these guys are. They, um, the the thing that I notice most about the movement broadly, I'm not necessarily naming one person, just broadly. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on the fact that, well, uh, my fundamentalist parents told me that it was a sin to drink, and now the Bible doesn't teach that, so I'm about to go. I'm going to drink, and I'm going to flaunt the fact that I'm drinking beer. Yes. Yeah. Okay, no, Scripture does not teach that drinking alcohol is a sin. It does teach that drunkenness is a sin, but it, it does not teach that drinking alcohol is a sin. Uh, however, no, you if, have, you have a, if you so have a... If you have a... You would have to have... Uh, 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 the, without refrigeration, uh, there would be no grape juice. <laughs> right. right. But what, where I'm going with that, though, is here's the problem. Uh... 
drink your alcohol and don't get drunk, and that's fine. I'm not going to say anything to you. Here's my problem. Your lack of consideration for your weaker brother. That's the problem. Why would you flaunt that? How in the world does that glorify Christ? It doesn't. It glorifies your freedom. So for that reason, I would have to I would have to reject that movement overall, even though I do recognize there are positive qualities in it. I wouldn't just like I wouldn't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater kind of thing. It's just there's those elements of it that's wrong. And also I think too being grounded more in a full more more fully reformed uh, theology as opposed to just this narrow soteriology, I think that helps, honestly. Um, I'm not saying that that's perfect. Everybody that's got Reformed theology understands that, but I think generally there's more understanding of ecclesiology and I'm supposed to prefer my brother and I just think there's better discipleship. That might be the better way to say that. <clears throat> uh, Go ahead. Uh, Something that uh, would bother me uh, every time uh, you would uh, do the reading of that uh, uh, chapter seven. Uh-huh. All right, basically, the situation is that uh, you know at the end of it, what it says is that uh, <coughs> uh, that uh, uh, Adam. Uh, I mean, that we could never uh, attain back to uh, the innocence of Adam. Uh, but basically, the situation situation is that uh, the way I always understood it was that uh, uh, Adam's supposed innocence uh, is actually probation. Because no, I agree. Okay, I'm sorry. So no, I, let me let me read the uh, line you're talking about. So this is at the end of chapter seven of the confession. It says humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. So the terms would be, of course, the terms of the covenant works. Yeah, and so, the, you know, we fail. And we that, uh, when you attribute innocence, uh, uh, that is uh, uh, so pretty much uh, think of it uh, this irrefutable. Way. Uh, uh, but basically <coughs> the situation is that what that means is that uh, 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 not only did Adam make a mistake, but God made a mistake. So think of it in these terms. I'm sorry. Well, I think this may help. Think of it in these terms, okay? Adam would have been innocent in the sense that he had never committed a sin. Sin, right. But he did not have positive righteousness. Right, because basically God knew what was coming. Yeah, so he, he, did, he had innocence in the sense that he was neutral. And but he did that, not have the positive righteousness God, necessary to go to heaven. God benefited from, I mean, not that he could benefit from man's uh, actions, but basically he benefited uh, because of the, uh, uh, the fall, uh, because what happens is that uh, then uh, everybody is put in the same category, uh, and the, what happens is that there's got to be a Savior. So what... Uh... What I would say, I agree with the majority of what you said, and I, I guess it's more of just a clarifying statement. Um, God benefited from the fall in the sense that God works all things together for his own glory, even our sin. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we went over secondary causes and things like that. God is not responsible for our sin. Mm-hmm. God's not hanging over us 
as the puppet master making us sin, but he is sovereign over the fact that we sin. But the thing is that uh, the the situation is that uh, uh, if man did not sin uh, and was able to eventually uh, eat from the tree of life, then what happens is that uh, Jesus didn't need to come. There's no there's no example uh, and precedent for uh, for the redemption that's coming. So what happens is that there wouldn't you know, be a need for redemption because we wouldn't be fail. Need for redemption. <laughs> yeah. And so what happens is that God, in order to in order to glorify Himself, uh, basically what happens is that uh, man uh, fouled up. But basically God knew He was going to foul up. But basically what He did is He then was able to show uh, the rest of the un- uh, the universe uh, this. Well, that's Romans eight twenty eight. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. Right. yeah, right. I think that statement, though, really, in my mind, really has more to do with the fact that Adam was created in a state of innocence, and when we're born, we're not. No, no, because I we're fallen. I mean, we're fallen. fallen. No, I understand. Right. was not created fallen. We are. We come out so, fallen. Yeah, again, I, that, that's why I say I would. But, I, you got to distinguish is, between innocence not, and it's righteousness. Not, it's not. It's not true innocence. What it is, it's probation. Uh, it's, well, it's uh, I think he's no, given I th- a shot. No, I think you're right, but the thing, right. the innocence in the sense that no, he had not sinned. That, not sinned. That, no, that, 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 that's the only way. Yeah, yeah. It certainly was. Uh, and he was at that point in time innocent no, until I, he committed I his understand Right, right. So anyway, so yeah, so that would be the difference in Adam and us. Adam yeah, what you, what was... You would, what oh, you ahead. would think is that, uh, you know, uh, when it says innocence... Uh, what what you have to believe is that uh, that basically he was um, uh, that would uh, that almost implies a permanent state uh, and basically I don't see I don't that. think the confession is well I say that like it's a, it's not only living thing I don't think the ones who framed the confession were meaning to convey that they didn't right. believe that I understand um, they were merely just saying he hadn't committed sin yet no I that, that's that. all they were meaning. I wish they had put that in there. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to... I want to continue this next week. I'm Okay, we're not going to get through this, which is kind of what I was hoping for. I really wanted discussion like this, so this is good. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to try to do one more question, and then we'll uh, cut it off right there, because this one's not as bad as the ones that we've already gone over. So finish on some... I'm not going to say good news, but some better news anyway. Um, okay, the next question. Does church membership matter? Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. In case I haven't quoted that enough. Uh, but what is the church? Biblically speaking, the church consists of those whom God has called out of the world and drawn to himself through Christ. The universal church, which consists of every person, past, present, and future, whom God calls to himself, is expressed tangibly through the local church bodies that extend around the world. So, uh, the question is, every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. I guess I should say statement. That's my question. Um, U.S. adult finding, 36% agree and 56% disagree. Okay. 
I mean, U.S. adult population, well, I think even pagans know we're supposed to be part of the church. <laughs> that's the thing. Um, <clears throat> okay, so that's just the U.S. adult population, right? It says, for much of American history, the influence of Christianity resulted in a high rate of church attendance and church membership was normative. Yet, increasing secularization in the United States has led to more Americans identifying as non-religious. They're lying to themselves. Everybody's religious. In addition, the entrenched cultural value of individualism makes it unsurprising that most Americans deem church membership as optional for Christians. So again, the question or statement is, every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. U.S. Evangelical finding. 68% agree and 26% disagree. So almost 70% understand, yes, I am required to be a member of a local church. Oh, that's a good, I mean, at least there's something positive here. Uh, that, that's a good I, thing. I don't know that I particularly like the word require because... Um, they said obligation, but that in, requires what I said. In 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 the in the context of, of church membership, we all know that there are wheats and tares. Yeah. Um, and so in every congregation there will be those that think they are believers but are actually not. True believers I, I don't I don't think true believers feel obligated they desire to be around people who are like them. They desire to be around their family. They desire to seek out those that are searching for the same things they are. I don't disagree with that. I think certainly um, once the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, they will have those, those desires. It's a joy. Led by the Spirit. But I would, I would actually take that back to my view. Um, well, I think even the confessional view. I think my view's in, in line with the confession. Um, of God's law because I do think we are required to be part of a local church but at the same time that should be our joy to do that that, it's not like it's it's, it's not like a um, because his law is written on our hearts if we actually belong to him right so So, it's not I don't feel it an obligation it's not like I gotta go and do it's not it's not an obligation in the sense of law keeping for the purpose of Righteousness to gain yeah. righteousness. Like I got to do XX or X, Y, and Z yeah. uh, to be able to be righteous or have some kind of status or whatever. No, certainly not. But um, I do think it's a requirement in the sense of Christ requires his universal church to manifest itself in local church. But if you're here, yeah, but you will. You will. No, 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 absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Will. He requires it, but... If we're really his, that's our joy to do that's, what he requires. That, yeah, that's <laughs> the point, yeah. yeah. The thing also is that uh, uh, in order for the Great Commission to actually be fulfilled, uh, what has to happen or what uh, should be happening is that uh, uh, basically uh, this is uh, this is not just a training uh, se- session. But it's also a mobilization session. And so the situation is that uh, uh, if, if we're going to reach the world, then basically uh, the church is... Uh, the church is the plan. I know. That's, yeah. And that's the instrument that he's going to use. Yes. And so the situation is that uh, uh, 
you know, it's not an obligation and a, a burden. Uh, it should be a training. I like that. It's not a burden. Yeah. Right. That, that's a good way to put it. It's not a burden, it's a joy. Hog can come up with... <laughs> there you go. No, but, I mean, that's really... What scripture says, I, right? I, that his, his, his commandments his are not burdensome, burdensome. absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's a, but they're still commandments. So, yeah, yeah I, okay, that, I think, is the word we were looking for. But they're not burdensome. Right. Yes. Since COVID, when the churches were shut down, I think a lot of people, my sister and my brother, don't go to church. It's like, well, we just do it online now, and most of the people we know don't even go to church. We just... We just get somebody off the internet. Yeah, that's and that's, that's also that's, that's super where my, where my brother is. Uh, he he claims that, uh, that he's in the biggest church in Texas because I mean, but basically what it is, it's all virtual. Uh, and so what it is is it's huge. It's they 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 have no a membership role. And it's it's unbelievable. So that raises a question that now I don't have this answer, but I just ponder now. How many of these people would consider that to be part, like to fulfill said obligation to be part of a local church? Well, let, me ask, let, let me ask it this way then. How many of you would virtually visit your children and never yeah. go visit them? How many of you would virtually right. visit your spouse and never go see them? I mean, this is family. Well, and this two, is, These are people that you are... But that's, I mean, I think they're conditioned right, since they were locked up. You can't so. have discussions like this. No. No, no that's right. <laughs> so, uh, you can't fellowship. You can't have the fellowship isolated. of the saints. And then on top of that, here's the thing that... I mean, nobody can get in your life. Well, there's no accountability. That's yeah. part of the reason for. That's part of the reason we're required to be. No, that's, that's is, is accountability. That's, that's yeah. essential. Uh, another thing, and this is you know, especially since we just went over all this, this is uh, certainly in my mind. Um, how do you get virtually baptized? <laughs> how do you virtually partake of the supper? Yeah. You can't. I know there are people that are claiming that you can, but listen, no, you can't. <laughs> um, no, the, the the minister breaks the bread and, and the elements are passed out uh, corporately and it is a sign of our communion. We can't be in communion apart. <laughs> like That's the opposite of what communion means. So... Um, and then, as far as baptism, like, I, I mean, obvious, if I'm in Georgia and you're in Texas, I can't baptize you. Uh, it just doesn't work. So, yeah, I mean, we can't do the sacraments, we can't have fellowship, we can't uh, have accountability, we can't, I mean, really, there's no legitimate discipleship process at all. Uh, it just destroys what the church is. Yeah, so, um, no, I, I'm very curious about that now. Is that like a caveat maybe they missed? I don't know. Um, given the Bible's assumption that those who claim to follow Christ will also join a local body of believers, it may be surprising that only 68% of evangelicals view church membership as obligatory. This may indicate the influence of an individualistic worldview within the church. See this pattern? Uh, as well as challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic and ever-increasing access to viewing various churches' services via the Internet. Yeah. There you go. <laughs>
Yeah, we, we've been set up. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, we've been set up for this. Yeah. Uh, in the situation, it's not uh, surprising. Uh, Satan is at work constantly, uh, and basically what he would love is for us to be uh, scattered and dispersed. Oh, yeah. And, Isolated, yeah. Right, and so what happens is that uh, we literally... Uh, have walked down this, the path that uh, we shouldn't be walking down. The, um, God, I wish I could remember who I got this from. I'm just going to say, I didn't come up with this, okay? I don't remember where I got it from. I just remember that I heard it. Um, okay, so there was, um, I think it was a Scottish pastor and uh, the congregate that was not attending church, and they were both sitting around the fire smoking a pipe, and the congregate says to the pastor, well, uh, Pastor, I, you know, I, I have my Bible and I read my Bible at home and I just don't see the need for me to come to church. And the pastor doesn't even look up from him. Uh, he just gets uh, one of the coals out of the fire and sets it to the side and they both watch it as the coal goes out. And he looks at him and he goes, I'll see you Sunday, Pastor. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of the idea. Uh, or another analogy is the uh, idea of the sheep. The lone sheep gets eaten by the wolf, right? So, um, and for that matter, the lone sheep, well, they're alone. They don't have a shepherd. So. um, At least they need a sheep dog. Right. (laughs) Right. So, all right. Well, that's where we're going to leave off for tonight. Uh, And I do intend to just continue to go over this. I think it's a nice break from what we've been doing. Not that there's anything wrong with what we've been doing, but... Um, I think it's a nice break, and I think we've had a good discussion tonight, so I I would like to have some more about that. Um, Anything else before we dismiss? Okay, if not, I'm going to go ahead and pray then. Father, uh, we are thankful that you have brought us together uh, as a community of believers, and we are thankful that we are in communion, first of all, with our Lord Jesus Christ, but then also uh, with each other in him. Uh, We are thankful for the accountability we have, but also the fellowship, um, the love that we have, the brotherly love that we have amongst ourselves. Um, And we know this is your doing, so and that's why I'm expressing thanks to you for it. I pray that you would help us to guard against these false ideologies that we've discussed tonight. Certainly we're not wanting to do this to pat ourselves on the back because, oh, we are so much smarter than everybody. No, uh, we do recognize that if it wasn't for your grace, we would be in the same or worse situation. So um, help us to approach this sort of thing humbly. And also we want to pray for those who are under the influence, uh, especially those damningly so, under the influence of false beliefs. Um, We pray that you would deliver them and that they would come to believe the gospel and be saved. And we pray that you would help us to be the ones to share it, because that's what we've been called to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.